welcome to Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our third season of Rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. This season is on the rhetoric of X, where X equals a subject, a profession, a field, or a discourse community. Today's topic is the rhetoric of sports commentary, which was suggested by Andrew, one of our listeners. Let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Ason ito hostis depas oisitai amphicupolon emianon da u femi tin aksemen alon aksion pugme nikesant epe oikomai enai aristos. Shades of Muhammad Ali. No kidding. All right, Tim, what is the rhetoric of sports commentary? It's the reporting and talk about the goings-on with sports, often about sports in progress, during the game, or about the contemporary sporting events. Typical examples seem to be football, baseball, basketball, soccer, golf, racing, whether it be auto, human, or horse. And I've even heard uh, some chess games with commenters. Well, Commentators, I should say there, Tim, commentators. <laughs> Well, regardless of the sports, the commentary focuses on ongoing activity, offers background information, explanations, and interpretations. Sometimes it's just one person. Sometimes it's many people with an audience that might not be physically present because they're at home watching TV, listening to the radio, or reading print or online. And that's uh, one of the key distinctions in the research that we found. There is SAT and WSC, sports announcer talk and written sports commentary. One of the aspects that separates sports announcer talk and written sports commentary is the level of arousal or excitement in the delivery. Okay, so Tim, can you give us some historical context? Sure. The telegraph was used to broadcast, so to speak, sports, but radio hit it big in 1920 when the results of the presidential election were broadcast as the results came in. And in case you didn't know, Warren G. Harding won it all. His presidency ended in scandal. I guess the point here, Tim, is that uh, radio pro- uh, proved itself to be a way to announce the news as it happened. So by in the next year, 1921, the first p- uh, play-by-play of an event was broadcast, and that was a boxing match. And so the popularity and prospects of sports announcing, announcing caused uh, a number of young folks to get involved in the business. One was a young man who auditioned to be the sportscaster for the University of Iowa. Years later, that young man, Ronald Reagan, won the 1980 and 1984 presidential election. His presidency also ended with scandal. I'm sensing a theme here, Tim. (laughs) And although it took some time to catch on, the television started appearing, and the first sporting event to be broadcast on TV was the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Was was there anything scandalous going on there? (laughs) Only if you were a Nazi watching Jesse Owens win the gold. Fast forward to 1961, when the first pre-game show premiered, and two years after that, instant replay was first used. And, you know, uh, uh, when I was uh, looking into this, Tim, I found that the announcers actually feared that people would believe that the uh, team scored twice. So they had to explain that what instant replay was and that the score didn't change with the instant replay. In the 1980s, sports commentary went back to the radio in the form of sports talk. Uh, Sports talk radio was great for people to come together to talk about sports, the games, to build a community uh, and get fans more involved in the sports drama 
rather than just being passive receivers at the end of a radio or TV transmission signal. And sports commentary continued to grow, and in its most recent iteration went online, with reporters tweeting or posting short updates online throughout a game. But of course, there's still sports on the radio and TV, but not on the telegraph. So we know what um, sports commentary is. Uh, We know some of the history, but what can you tell us about the actual people who does this kind of stuff, Tim? Well, there are a number of different people involved in sports commentary. There's the anchors, the news anchors you might see on the nightly news, but they're more reporting about sports news. And I guess there's also the uh, radio talk show hosts, right, that we just kind of mentioned mm-hmm. back, in the, back in the 80s. And then there are the play-by-play announcer and the color commentator. The play-by-play person talks about the players, what they're doing and their backstories, strengths and weaknesses of players and teams, gives stats. Yeah, and I, you know, uh, one thing I, I found out about that, I was always impressed how these people always had these numbers right on their fingertips. But it turns out they actually have helpers, mm-hmm. right, people that have, the, have all that data at their fingertips. Right. Now, the play-by-play, they talk about various strategies each team is using. And, of course, they announce and explain to listeners and viewers what is going on in the game. And while a play-by-play announcer can prepare to some extent, the real challenge of their job, it seems, is being able to keep up and respond to a rapidly changing situation on the field, court, or wherever. Yeah, and uh, so that's the play-by-play person, uh, and they're not always alone, right? Correct. The announcer is often accompanied by a color commentator. These people are there to add a bit of color to the broadcast. More often than not, the color commentator is a former player or coach or someone with first-hand experience who can offer insight, historical framing, and other reflections to add to what the play-by-play announcer says. And to round things out, there are the sideline reporters who report from... They're from the sidelines, Tim. (laughs) Bingo. They offer in-game interviews, report on injuries, or late-breaking events. Now, that's a pretty hefty overview, Tim. You ready for the rhetoric? You got it. All right, that's what people want, and that's what we're going to dish it out, like rich spoonfuls of creamery butter. All right, so first up is ethos and credibility. Uh, We know credibility is a huge issue, uh, and it's true even in the sports sports commentary. Uh, The play-by-play person's got to know the rules, right? All of them. And and they got to know the players. They got all of them. They got to know the coaches. All of them. Uh, And they got to they got to know all the details, right? All the details. And another thing about credibility is they they've got to be fair. That's right. Some teams have their own announcer, and they must call the game equally, criticizing the home team and praising the other team when appropriate. Otherwise, they're just not credible or honest, and they have to deliver all that smoothly and professionally. Yeah, and the color commentator, uh, their credibility comes from their experience from uh, being a former player, coach, or uh, whatever they may have been. Uh, and the color commentator, he doesn't really have to be uh, profesh- a professional in the booth. Like, they don't have to be a smooth talker so much um, because what gives them their kind of uh, experiences that uh, uh, or expertise is that experience on the field. Uh, so they don't have to talk pretty uh, because they have that wealth of information. But they can work at it and learn to talk pretty. That is true, right? Uh, sophists for sports. Is that what we should do? Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so, and so credibility is important with uh, other types of sports commentators as well. Uh, they have to develop relationships with sources. Uh, those might be the players, the coach, the team managers. Uh, and they have to make sure they get their facts right when they're reporting. This is also true of the play-by-play person, but it's arguably much more difficult because the game is going on as the reporting happens in real time. A journalist or news anchor, their deadline might be hours away, but the people calling the game in real time, their deadline is right that second with no time for error. They've got to know their stuff. All right, so 
Uh, that's ethos. Let's talk about uh, pathos, right? Uh, so pathos, the dramatic nature of sports commentary. Um, some aspects, of, uh, uh, especially of uh, some sports, I should say, uh, especially the most popular ones, can have a lot of nothing going on, right? I'm amazed how a one-hour-long game can last four hours. <laughs> I'm just not sure how that happens. Uh, so when nothing's going on, there's nothing going on. But sometimes it can get very dramatic. And that theme of drama is is how announcers kind of add uh, some color or uh, 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 impressive delivery to what they're doing. Exactly. They use metaphors like war, one team fighting against another. And that is created using emotional tension through the use of dramatic narrative. Oh, so uh, we're going uh, like that uh, uh, girl you dated back in 82? No, no. They use dramatic structure, exposition, the overview of what is going on, rising action, climax, the most intense aspect, the culmination, if you will, then falling action, and finally denouement, where things are resolved. Are, are, we, are you sure, Tim, that we're not talking about that girl you dated back in 82? No comment. <laughs> okay, no comment. And in this dramatic telling, there are a number of dramatic themes. One scholar found these popular themes. Last chance. Fatal error, futility, wasted opportunities, downfall of the hero, triumph of the hero, doomed, and it ain't over until it's over. Mm. All right. And another scholar that we've looked into uh, found these mot- motifs, motifs, there you go, motifs in sports commentary, uh, competition, that seems obvious, gamesmanship, spirit, competence, and the old college try, and don't forget the best one of all, miracles, right? And nothing's more dramatic when we talk about the end of the game miracle. And in fact, Tim, I would argue to say that all miracles happen at the end of a game. Imagine how you're starting the kickoff of a brand new game and the announcer goes, do you believe in miracles in the first right half? No, you're right. That's not going to happen uh, because miracles, that saving redemption moment has to attend uh, happen at the end of the drama. Otherwise, there's just, there's just no drama, right? Because the game's over at the very beginning before it even starts. Um, and so what's the point of having people, you know, tuned in and listening? Why? For, you know, why? The valuable, valuable, uh, uh, what is it? Advertising revenue. Exactly. And herein is one of the major issues commentators have to deal with, the blowout. When one team is several lengths ahead of the other team so early in the game, the announcers really have their work cut out for them. Uh, the blowout. Is that why you don't remember too much from the 70s, Tim? <laughs> I think you got it. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's talk about some of this uh, specific language stuff. I like stuff. I do too. All right. So uh, sports commentary is uh, its a unique genre of rhetoric. It's instantly recognizable. Uh, you can turn on a radio and you can know within like 4.2 nanoseconds that you're listening to sports commentary. There's There's nothing that sounds like it. Yeah, that ability comes from its prosodic pattern, the features of tempo, rhythm, loudness, intonation, and other characteristics of voice. All right, so let's let's highlight a few. And I and, uh, and you know, looking at these, I bet English teachers hate the nature of sports commentary. I'd agree. It's full of unfinished utterances, self repairs, and self interruptions. Where you're talking and then correct yourself or start saying one thing before you're done, you interrupt yourself with a new thought, and sometimes what they say lacks coherence. Are we talking about uh, English teachers or the sports commentators? Both. Uh, yes, that is true. All right. So speaking of harsh, vindictive English teachers, uh, I found a scholarly article that talks about the nature of criticism in sports commentary. Uh, so when a sports announcer criticizes, they have to be careful about uh, whom they criticize. 
to criticize the team or the players is to criticize those who the audience most identifies with. And you just, you just can't do that. Uh, that would alienate the audience and make them uh, defensive over what's being said. So you know who they criticize? The coaches? Or the refs? The refs, bingo, right? It's definitely the refs. It's always the refs' fault. Uh, even when my wife gets mad at me, I tell her it's the refs' fault. And <laughs> there's no sports going on in this house. Uh, so, But when uh, announcers do criticize the players, especially the home players, uh, they often turn the heat down a bit and say things like, oh, he was just a little too uh, too much ahead of himself, or she was just a bit behind, or she was just short of, or something like that. Right? They really kind of uh, diminish what's going on uh, when they're criticizing the the team that they're most associated with. So, and these examples uh, highlight uh, another micro aspect of sports commentary, uh, simplification, right? Uh, a lot of sports announcers, t- a lot of sports announce talk amidst the uh, subject of a sentence, for example. So say an announcer wouldn't say something like, he was just short of, they just say, just short of, right? Leaving out the he. Uh, here's another example. Um, a sports commentator wouldn't say, it is a fastball, and it is a strike. They say, no, fastball, and strike, right? Just something real quick like that. Announcers will also drop the post-nominal copula, which I had no idea what that is, so I asked... Uh, An English asked, teacher? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, you know I don't talk to those English people. Uh, the internet, and they don't talk to me. No, so the internet is a classic. Uh, the internet, I, that's where I got it. Uh, and uh, I found out that a classic post-nominal copula is a lot like the linking word is. And I'm still not sure why they call it that, but whatever. So you wouldn't say, for example, uh, McGee is in close at second. You drop that is and just say McGee in close at second. That sounds like a real baseball uh, example right there, doesn't it? It does. That's right. And all these are uh, all these forms are simplification, right? Leaving out some part of a uh, formal part of a sentence. Uh, and you don't frequently see this much in other things other than uh, sports commentary. Agreed. Another technique is the inversion, and those English teachers would hate you using it in a paper. An inversion is when the verb phrase comes before the subject phrase. In proper English, you'd say, McGee is on deck. But in sports talk, you'd invert or flip that and say, on deck is McGee. Or, deep to receive for the Razorbacks is Carl Jung, which should be, in the Queen's English, Carl Jung is deep to receive for the Razorbacks. Ah, that's true. And so, Tim, when when I first found this, I didn't believe it at all. I just did not believe it. I'm not a sports person, but uh, you watch a little bit of sports, and I just didn't believe it. So I, I texted uh, the guy who teaches sports communication here at Ryder University, Dr. A.J. Moore, and I asked him, I said, which would you say, up next is more or more is up next? And without a second, you know what he said? Why are you bothering me? No, uh, well, maybe. <laughs> he said, like, without a response, he says the one that's inverted. That's what you would say in sports. And I had to give him no context what we're talking about. It was just, he just intuitively know that. So uh, I thought that was uh, impressive. But uh, I guess I should mention that Dr. Moore does a sports podcast at Ryder called uh, Go, Go Bronx Podcast. Uh, and he and I wrote a paper a number of years ago about presidents and the use of sports as a public relations tactic. Uh, it is quite possibly the world's greatest paper, Tim. Well, Dave, speaking of overly exaggerated descriptions, sports announcers frequently use heavy modifiers, and these are just descriptions of the player, coach, ref, whoever, that reflect some characteristic of the person. 
A.J. Moore, the sports communication professor, or McGee, the crackerjack from Berkeley, steps up to the microphone. Nice. But in, but in sports, you might hear heavy modifiers such as the powerhouse, the left-hander, etc. The good-looking bald guy, <laughs> right? All right, so now one of the most interesting things that I've come across in all this is how the play-by-play person and the color commentator uh, go through the game without constantly interrupting each other. Uh, and you know how they do it? A talking stick? No, Tim. What? No. Uh, I found this one guy. He was, uh, I call him my hardcore sociolinguist, uh, speaking of exaggerated descriptions. Uh, uh, and he found that sports announcers have this distinct way of pausing in the middle of an utterance in places you would not normally stop at. So by doing this, it's somewhat intuitively clear that the other, to, that per, to the other person in the booth with the, the uh, announcer, or to anyone really, that they're not done with saying what they have to say. So the other person just instinctively knows not to talk. And so here's a quote straight from the article. Pauses are, quote, frequently made after conjunctions or other particles that cannot syntactically demarcate the end of a sentence. In other words, it seems if an announcers tend to place their shorter breathing and thinking pauses after these elements in order to signal that they intend to continue, unquote. So... If the announcer talks like a proper English teacher prefers, the person would stop at some punctuation marker, a comma, a period, something like that. But that does not readily cue the other person that the speaker intends to continue. But there's also another way to ensure the proper turn-taking and transition occurs, uh, and that's by asking questions. And since the color commentator is there because of their expertise of what is going on uh, in the game and not necessarily their prowess in broadcasting, uh, a good announcer will cue the color uh, the commentator that a question is coming often by saying their name or saying, I have a question for you uh, to kind of give them a little heads up. So, Tim, with that, you ready to talk about one more thing? You ready? Very good example, Dave. And yes. <laughs> All right. So sports commentary is not without its issues. And uh, primarily it deals with race and gender. Um, in terms of gender, it has been difficult, very difficult for many women to get involved in the business of sports commentary because there's this common misperception and stigma that no matter how hard they try, uh, the belief goes, women just cannot, uh, they just don't know as much about sports as men do. And while many women have become more involved in sports as time goes on, uh, they're still marginalized quite literally and figuratively. Uh, women are frequently relegated to reporting from the sidelines of the game, and male announcers do most of the reporting or announcing uh, from some booth somewhere, and they occasionally throw down to the sideline reporter here and there. And to make it worse, women are often uh, objectified and sexualized to the point that there is a common stereotype of the good-looking and usually blonde sideline reporter with little attention being paid to, uh, to her abilities as a commentator or reporter. And just to kind of prove this point, uh, if you go open up your internet browser and Google sports announcer, and then then Google sideline reporter, and compare the results, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. On your suggestion, Dave, I did just that, and the results are striking. They are striking. 
As for race, a study from 2020 found a major race problem in soccer games. The scholars found that players with lighter skin tones were praised for their mental abilities, intelligence, quality, and work ethic, whereas darker-skinned players received much more criticism about their intelligence. Darker-skinned players were praised more for their natural athletic ability, which, they argued, diminishes the actual work and effort the players have put into their training. In effect, it's classic brains versus brawn. The lighter-skinned players were seen as brains, and the darker-skinned players were seen as just the brawn. And there are a number of examples of announcers, talk show hosts, and others who lost their jobs because of racist statements. Don Imus, Jimmy the Greek, and even Rush Limbaugh are all well-known in the sports world as people who lost jobs for saying racist things. And this is happening more and more at all levels, from the pros to high school levels. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Okay, we've landed on fallacy. Today's rhetorical fallacy is circular reasoning. Uh, when you make an argument, you often uh, you offer a claim, uh, the point you're trying to argue, and you support that with data. So, for example, um, say, I, ne- I need a cheeseburger because I'm hungry. The point I'm making is that I want something to eat because I'm hungry. And the reasoning is that you need to eat something when you're hungry. It's pretty straightforward. And cheeseburgers are a fantastic means to alleviate hunger. But sometimes people will argue a point by supporting it with, uh, with the point itself. Uh, and this is an error in reasoning, and that's what a fallacy is. So an example of this would be, I need a cheeseburger because I need a cheeseburger. And you can see why this is called circular reasoning. The reason and the claim are basically the same thing. So here's another example. If the Cubs want to win this game, they've got to prevent the other team from scoring. Or, say from auto racing, if Jeff Gordon in the number 24 car maintains the lead, he'll win the race. In each of these examples, the announcer is supporting the claim by repeating a variation of the claim. If the Cubs are going to win, they should keep the other team from winning. If Jeff Gordon in the Chevy Chevy Monte Carlo in the uh, number 24 Chevy Monte Carlo continues to be the winning, he'll win. And that is circular reasoning. Even if it's on an oval track. Amen. All right, Tim, who's sponsoring this episode? Despite considerable progress diversifying corporate America, it is still true that the executive suite in most fields are largely male domains, and the consequences of that dominance is the frequent use of metaphors and idioms from the world of sports. But not everyone is equally conversant in sports jargon. So, women and men who don't follow sports could well be perceived as coming out of left field when attempting to engage in the no-holds-barred banter found in many arenas. So, you may be able to walk the walk, but unless you can talk the talk, you may be out for the count before you know what hit you. But a subscription to the Seasonal Journal of Sports Jargon will have you swinging for the fences and batting a thousand before the Fall Classic, regardless of how many curveballs they throw you. And when the season shifts to the game of inches, you won't be blitzed, blindsided, or sacked, even if your colleagues try to move the goalposts. Nor will you have to worry about a false start, jumping the gun, or dropping the baton when the competition raises the bar. Armed with a full arsenal of appropriate seasonal sports metaphors, you won't have to pull your punches when a competitor with a glass jaw leads with his chin, nor will you ever again have to take one for the team, leave your fate to a Hail Mary, or hope for a walk-off home run. That's the seasonal journal of sports jargon, so you'll have someone in your corner to keep you in the running to be the odds-on favorite to knock one out of the park. 
I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been rhetoric Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library. And you can still email us suggestions you have for future shows by emailing us at rhetoric.fun at gmail.com.